Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Tang. Today, I have the honor to host not only one, but two guests, Sarah Hinkfez and Sanya Oja from Bain Capital Ventures. Bain Capital Ventures is the venture arm of Bain Capital, one of the world's renowned private investment groups with 165 billion AUM. BCB is currently investing out of Fund 10 with a wide mandate, writing checks starting from 1 million and up to 100 million. At BCV, Sarah and Sonia partner with growth stage founders, building the next generation of fintech companies. Before joining Bank Capital Ventures, Sarah started her investing career on the growth team at KKR. She previously worked at Applied Predictive Technologies, an enterprise SaaS company in the predictive analytics space that was acquired by MasterCard in 2015. Sonia is a proud Wharton alum. After starting her career at Goldman Sachs, she joined Koei2 in 2019 and then Bank Capital Ventures. In today's episode, we got to know about Sarah and Sonia's stories and their views on the impact of generative AI on financial services. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Sarah and Sonia, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, I would love to kick it off to hear about your story. And I know, Sarah, you come from an MBA background, and Sonia, you are a Wharton graduate. So we'd love to hear more about what brought you specifically to growth investing and focus on fintech. Maybe we start with you, Sarah. Yeah, happy to. And I never made my way through Penn, but have so many friends who I respect deeply who have. So it's great to be here. Um, and Sonia, chiefly among them, of course. So on my side, I'm originally from Wisconsin. And as you mentioned, I started my career not actually in investing, but I started in operating. And so I joined out of college, I joined a software company that was building enterprise software in the predictive analytics space. So it was when big data was all the rage. Um, We've now totally changed and we have a whole new AI wave that obviously we're gonna talk a lot more about. Um, But it was exciting at the time to really be in the middle of all that. And the company that I joined was small and then scaled very quickly. And so I was able to be uh, on the leadership team to really help build out this new organization. And then we were acquired by MasterCard back in 2015. So I stayed on to the transition and then ended up going for my MBA at Stanford, as you mentioned. So in terms of how I got to investing from operating, I actually spent some time reflecting on what is it that I really loved and what was I really uniquely good at during my time at APT? And so a few things that really resonated with me. One is I loved uh, learning new things. So I was always drawn to those experiences and I was very much a systems level thinker. And so I love seeing how different components of a system came together and what opportunities that created or what trends over time. And then third, I knew that I wanted people to always be the core of what I was doing. So people are the currency of, of investing and also the currency of business development where I was spending my time. And so mentors recommended I check on investing, which I had never, ever <laughs> considered. Um, and so I was very fortunate to, to land at Stanford and have a chance to um, join Cowboy Ventures. And so Aileen Lean's group, she is an incredible mentor and took her a chance on me to give me um, the opportunity to learn venture with her and her team. And I confirmed that I love investing, which I really felt like I had to try to know. And that's what I always tell MBA grads as well, that you should give it a try before you know if it's worth the switch. 
And then I did realize, however, that I wanted to do growth stage. I loved that post-product market fit stage of a company with explosive growth. And so I needed to learn the investor toolkit. So I joined KKR after my MBA and was there for a few years. And then I found my home at Bain Capital Ventures, where I'm honored to work with Kevin, who you had on the podcast, Sonia, and a number of other phenomenal investors. That's awesome. How about you, Sonia? Yeah, so uh, my journey has definitely been a little bit different, uh, thanks to the fact that I did undergrad at Wharton. Um, and it feels like finance and business are really in the air of that institution. Um, so when I joined, I was actually in the Huntsman program. So I was doing uh, finance at Wharton, and then I did international studies in French in the college. And I was pretty determined to go against the grain and follow my heart and not graduate with a finance degree. Uh, but it took like a semester in and uh, my first finance class to realize I actually found it fascinating. Um, my parents were political science professors in India and we would often have political discussions and I found that very fascinating. But I think what's really cool is most things that are happening in the world, political or socioeconomic, you can all like draw all of it back to the fundamentals of economics and where the money flows and what's getting funded. Um, and it just felt like such a foundational topic to me that I got more and more interested. And, you know, since then, I would describe myself as just a lifelong student of business. Um, I think it's fascinating to think about um, how companies shape the world around us and shape our lives and how, like, you know, innovation in the business markets is actually creating the framework within which our lives operate today and the potential of what human beings can achieve. And um, anyway, I've gotten too philosophical. The actual trajectory that I went on was joined Goldman Sachs after graduation um, on the hedge fund team. So I was doing long, short fundamental equity, uh, often found myself on the short side of trades, uh, which was really fun um, and very scary because uh, theoretically the losses are limitless. Um, but it also forces you to have a very, very in-depth understanding of very scaled businesses, which was amazing training, detail-oriented and asking the questions that are not apparent at the first glance. And I thought I was going to be a public market investor for a very long time, but um, I started working in autos and studying autonomous and electrification as trends and saw some of the coolest technologies in the world, went and spent time with OEMs and auto suppliers in Germany and came out of that experience with a basket of auto supplier shorts. Uh, the short basket performed very well, but that was a straw that broke the camel's back where I was like, I am looking at the most exciting trends in the world and then I'm betting on who's going to lose. Um, and I wanted to bet on the innovation. So that took me to doing growth equity while still at Goldman. Um, eventually, I had it at the back of my mind that you have to go to Silicon Valley to do private market investing. So I packed my bags, moved to another growth firm called GoTo out in San Francisco in 2019. So I did seed and growth and also incubated a company. So it was a very wide range of stages that I was working across. Um, and realized that, okay, this is definitely where I want to be in terms of what stage of a company I'm investing in. Found my way to Bain Capital Ventures, and now I'm fortunate enough to work with Sarah and Kevin, who you've also interviewed. And it's just an incredible group of people. And uh, it's a special thing to be able to do a job you love with people you really love and respect. So very happy to be here. Excited to talk to you more about growth investing, which I feel like I've been doing in some shape or form for a very long time now. That's awesome. I love both of your stories. They are quite different, and I can see how you can bring different perspectives when it comes to an investment committee meeting. 
One follow-up question for you, Sarah. You've mentioned that you wanted to work with awesome founders, and you also mentioned that you tried out different stages for investing during MBA. Curious, why did you end up in growth investing side? More often than not, when people like to work with founders, they tend to find themselves going on to the earlier stage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you're right that if you think about the basket of criteria that matters for an investment, when it's an early stage company, you have fewer elements of the business or the economics that I've developed. And so the founder is that much more important on a relative basis. That being said, our team believes that founders are critical throughout the entire life cycle of a company. And so in many ways, even when a company is a growth stage company, that company is constantly reinventing itself. So figuring out what is the next new product or the next new market, or how do I think about actually hiring the brand new team or creating um, more specialized teams underneath a whole group that I already had that existed. And so there's this constant reinvention that's actually a part of operating really large companies as well, which is why the founder is such a core part of that entire journey. Um, but, but I guess more generally to answer your question, as I thought about why growth stage investing, one of the books that I read early on as I was thinking about investing was, of course, P- a Peter Thiel zero to one. And this idea that there are people who are zero to one people and they're one to infinity folks. And I'm definitely a one to infinity person um, in all aspects of my life. <laughs> I love thinking in a hyper efficient, hyper organized way and love being able to take something really good and make it really big and great. And so I've loved that in the work that I did at APT. That was really my my mission and my the scope of my work. And I love now being a coach and supporting our entrepreneurs and doing that as well. And so we always work with them on the growth team post product market fit. So they have something that is amazing and working really well. And now it's about taking that to the next arena. And our team really supports them to do that. Got it. As you both know and are living through it, over the last couple of years, there are a lot of VCs or even more mature hedge funds trying to go into the growth stage investment. So you really need to differentiate yourself as a growth stage investor. And it's great to hear that Bain Capital Venture has been taking on a founder-oriented approach to work closely with the founding team. Yeah. I mean, maybe Zoe, just to pick up on that too. And so a part of how we think about differentiation in the market is um, who we are uniquely as investors. And, and Sanya and I both talked about that. It's also deep domain expertise that we develop, which I know we'll get into in the fintech space. And then third, there's an element of our platform team and overall Bain Capital as well. Um, So Sonia, I don't know if you want to mention just platform, because I think it's something so unique about what we offer. Yeah, I think uh, we definitely capitalize on the benefits that accrue from being a part of the larger, you know, Bain Capital platform. Uh, So Bain Capital itself manages $175 in AUM. And within that, we're Bain Capital Ventures. Uh, We have about $10 billion uh, in AUM, currently investing out of a $1.9 billion uh, family of funds. Uh, but what we kind of get from having Bain Capital on one end is um, I almost describe it as a two-way window between Silicon Valley and Main Street, um, where we have an incredible platform team that focuses on customer development, helps with hiring. But what they're able to do is really take 
early stage um, tech companies and help them interface with Fortune 500 companies that we have existing relationships with or massive private companies or public companies that might be um, in being uh, capital's portfolio. One tactical example of it is we sometimes have, you know, customer development seminars where a company comes in and is like, uh, here are the key issues that are top of mind for us. And we then introduce them, them to portfolio companies of ours that are actually working to solve the issues that are top of mind for them. For the established company, it's like a window into the world of innovation and opportunity. And for our startup port uh, companies in our portfolio, basically a sales conversation with key decision makers that they could have never had at the stage that they're currently at. Um, so it's a very beneficial relationship for either end of uh, being capital where established companies figure out what's going on, you know, up from the ground up and early stage companies can really connect to more established ones. Um, and we really lean into that advantage. Why don't we talk about, uh, you know, the benefit that we have to offer in the latest deal that Sarah led uh, with EvenUp. And I think she really kind of leveraged the Bain Capital Network to potentially add value to that company. Yeah. So as Sonia mentioned, EvenUp is an investment that I just led at Bain Capital Ventures. And it's a legal tech company that is leveraging generative AI to create a 10x better outcome for personal injury attorneys and in developing demand letters and overall taking on the job that a personal injury attorney does, which is a massive market within the legal tech space. And one of the areas of interest for the company when they were thinking about bringing on a new partner for their Series B, which was a really competitive raise, was who can help us in a unique way to do things that we can't do on our own? So who can actually, what firm can differentially drive value for the company? And today, as I mentioned, they're active in personal injury, so the space within law. But there's the opportunity to take the exact same product and workflow that they're leveraging for personal injury and deliver it to the other side of the transaction, which is the insurance company. And so Bain Capital Ventures with Bain Capital, and also we have an insurance fund that's uniquely investing in insurance. We have incredible relationships throughout the insurance ecosystem. And so that gives us a window into what are the top innovative priorities happening at these insurance companies, being able to make those introductions directly to put them in the right place at the right time, and also helping them think about what are the product decisions that are so important for them to consider, even in advance of having those high stakes conversations. And so having us and then also those other teams in their back pocket is critical as they think about really crossing the bridge into the next new market that can be a huge part of the company going forward. Um, and, and so for, for even up this just one example, but I think it, it is constantly the case that we are leveraging the relationships across bank capital, as Sonia talked about. I think uh, one example I would add is um, the chief information security officer of Bain Capital as a whole not only manages our information security across the entire firm, but all of the Bain Capital portfolio companies meet with him regularly to think about their own security and software stacks. Um, and that in itself is a huge unlock for any cybersecurity company that we end up investing in. Uh, one, it helps us diligence it better because we have a CISO that really understands not only our own requirements, but the requirements of a cross section of some really established companies. But two, it's a window for them to then sell into Bain Capital itself and all of our portfolio companies. Um, so we think about our portfolio companies as 
these could be potential customers and as they should be because the, hopefully the companies we're also investing in are the ones that are at the cutting edge of innovation and whatever they're doing. That's awesome. Even just sitting here listening to you guys share about the experiences, I'm super attracted to these opportunities. I'm sure the founders will love these kind of opportunities to partner with Bain Capital and their portfolio company. Um, even Up Law is a great example. This summer I was doing a VC internship and I think everyone was trying to get into that deal. So congrats on closing that deal. Maybe take a step back because I know Sarah, you have this broader thesis in generative AI and I know Sonia, you've been looking a lot into this space as well. You guys put together a couple of thought leadership publications, including how FinTech can jump on the generative AI bandwagon. And earlier this year, you published a state of generative AI in financial services. Just wondering if you can give us an overview on your thesis and on what is the TLDR from your perspective on these reports? Yeah, totally. So maybe to build the map quickly. So across our team, we have domain specialization and all of us are spending time in generative AI across all of our domains. And the fintech team was observing the financial services industry was slower on the uptake of generative AI. And in many ways, this is totally expected, right? Because financial services is conservative. There's a lot of regulation. There's a lot of proprietary information. Like there are all these reasons why it was it made sense that financial services was slow to think about generative AI. And at the same time, there are huge opportunities for financial services within the space. And so that was the thesis of the first piece on how financial services can jump on the generative AI bandwagon, kind of a tongue-in-cheek title to, to get people interested and help, help them get over that activation or that fear of actually thinking about it. And then as we put out that first piece, What's amazing about writing thought leadership is that it really attracts people to you. And so from that first piece, we had all of this amazing inbound conversations and we were able, we had a ticket to talk to people who are at the top of their field thinking about it as well. And so we had hundreds of conversations that then resulted in that the field notes that you mentioned. And so that was really capturing the state of the world that we saw at the intersection of generative AI and fintech. And we published that this spring. And so maybe just a few of the, the key ideas from that, as you asked. Um, one of them is that there is a distinction from traditional predictive AI that's been used for decades within financial services and generative AI. And importantly, we believe that they're going to coexist. And so this isn't a case where generative, generative AI is in with the new and out with the old, but rather there are really important use cases where one is important or the other is important, or they could be used in combination for a very powerful solution. Second of all, that generative AI enables financial services to do things that they couldn't before do. And so we can get into it, but it's really a lot of service automation. And one of my favorite examples of an application is that generative AI enables financial services to be empathetic, which has often been a critique of the industry, right? Financial services, as Sanya was saying, is corridor lives, but at the same time, it's often really hard to understand, <laughs> really hard to make sense of it, and people have an emotional relationship with it. And so this AI is actually, it, it's warm, it's empathetic, it cares, it has it has um, feelings in a way that traditional AI doesn't. Um, third, there are multiple models for how to integrate it, which we can get into if that's of interest. 
And then fourth, um, what has now become, I think, a generally accepted fact, but was a little bit more controversial when we said it, was that generative AI will at first more benefit the incumbents than it will the disruptors. And that's just because of the precedents that are often so important to make use out of generative AI. Um, and so as an investing team, we think about both supporting our existing portfolio companies to integrate generative AI, as well as finding those new opportunities on the horizon or that are being created now that are the disruptors that are um, bringing generative AI into these industries, such as financial services. Yeah, I totally resonate with the empathetic point. Financial services today is often criticized by not providing a customized customer experience and end product, even though money is highly emotional. So within areas, for example, banking and wealth management that can adopt generative AI and provide a more empathetic solution, which one do you think will be quicker with adoption versus others, given the current regulation consideration? Ooh, interesting question. Um, so I think the, the first places that we have seen it already are those where there's already been like a version 1.0 of AI that was used, like conversational AI. So we already saw within customer service, for instance, there was a lot of AI that was being used. And now it's just much better because it has the the benefit of standing on the foundation models in a way that the old systems didn't. Um, but maybe the places where I'm most excited about it, and I think is totally within the realms, the, the bounds of what current regulation exists, I would say the two, uh, one of them are really intense services steps within the financial services production process. And so one example of that is compliance. So compliance is a very iterative bespoke process that has to happen where you're finding exceptions to rules and then those have to be investigated by specialized teams. And it requires a lot of information and a lot of um uh, bringing together these different data sources and it's the art as well as the science. And so that is something that has added a ton of cost to a lot of financial services that has until now not really been, techn technology hasn't played a role. And so I think we're actually seeing the opportunity now where there's some really exciting compliance companies that are being built around generative AI as a core component of it. And then maybe just to add one industry that you didn't mention in your list, just because it's one of my favorites. I already talked about it, but the insurance space. Um, so banking is complicated. Having a loan is complicated. Like all these things are true. And insurance is so complicated. And I think what's unique about insurance is that it's often um, mandated. Like by law, if you're an operating company, you have to have a commercial policy. By law, if I'm an auto driver, I have to have an auto policy. And so Insurance is one of those amazing products that everyone has to purchase. And at the same time, people hate it. <laughs> it's like a terrible experience for all these reasons. And so I'm particularly excited about the opportunities for generative AI to fully transform insurance distribution. Got it. That's awesome. And I think one element, Sonia, in your recent LinkedIn post that really picked my interest is you mentioning that for generative AI compared to some of the other technology there's no typical consumer to enterprise adoption lag. Obviously, a lot of the examples Sarah was talking about exactly proving that compliance use cases more on the enterprise's side versus quoting someone for an insurance more on the consumer side. I'm wondering why is that case for this specific technology? Because obviously, many other new technology in fintech, for example, robo-advisory, it started with consumer adoption first 
and then sort of have to, to have more partnership for enterprises. Yeah, I think, you know, it's really interesting where obviously people that had been working in the space and researchers and people that were building from years ago knew the potential of what they were building towards, but somehow was catapulted to global consciousness for everyone at the very same time in November of last year. I mean, consumer behavior takes a while to change. So while there were like some fun applications for consumers, I think businesses very quickly grasped the potential game-changing ramifications of this tech. And, you know, right now we're talking about consumer-facing uh, changes. We're talking about how industries can change from the customer perspective. But what's very interesting is how generative AI can change the cost basis of any business in the world. You should be thinking through every line item and thinking through how you can make it better and more efficient, whether it is within your engineering organization and you want to adopt code generation to supercharge all of the engineers in your team, whether content marketing, instead of building out a team of 10, you're actually going to keep a leaner team and use Gen AI for all of your first drafts. Uh, whether it is sales enablement. Um, you know, there are many, many use cases in the course of running a business that can just be in immediately uh, made more effective and efficient by leveraging this technology. And I think there's such a top-down pressure that we're seeing across all businesses today uh, to figure out um, how to get and leverage this technology within um, those companies that... Um, it's actually quite fascinating to watch. Like often we hear, hey, budgets are under pressure. There's no net new incremental spend going on, except if you're doing something in generative AI and can help us adopt. Um, so we're seeing a lot of like enthusiasm and momentum from the enterprise side. While at the same time, if you think about what's happened to consumer applications, there have been sort of these chatbot-like uh, things that people interact with. Um, there are a few people that have definitely like leveraged these uh, chatbots or one-off platforms into their day-to-day -day workflows, but it's an incremental behavior. So it sees a lot of churn um, versus what we're seeing like companies that are consumer-facing do, and which is why we kind of talk about how incumbents have this huge advantage uh, because they control the two things that are most important, data and distribution. Data is what feeds the model into actually being a good model versus a garbage in garbage out sort of situation and distribution enables you to um, grow faster because you're not banking on changed customer behavior you're just infusing ai into whatever distribution points you already have with the customer which is why microsoft and google are all racing to kind of infuse that ai into everything that they do because they already control that customer relationship um so i think the customer incrementality is low because we're just kind of seeing incumbents that already control customer relationships elevate whatever their offering is um, and the change in customer behavior is kind of longer to do and I don't think we've seen the next generation of consumer applications at all that are going to leverage generative AI because all of that thinking and planning is going on the AI infrastructure that would enable the creation of like very good front-end applications is still underway. Uh, but what we're seeing from a customer perspective is companies that are racing to embed um, AI into existing workflows are seeing customers adopt them. Uh, but mostly enterprises are just in this, like it's survival, it's like a fight or flight for them. It's survival mode because if you don't figure it out 
before your competitor does, you're going to be sitting on a fundamentally different cost structure. And the second your cost structure becomes fundamentally different, you are able to price someone else out of the market versus get priced out of the market yourself. So I think there's um, multiple layers to it, but I would say that I think this is one where enterprises have jumped absolutely right in. It's not like a notion where customers start using it first and then people are like, oh, it's like good that collaboration. Um, and then uh, you go that way. It's happening both ways at the same time. Wow, super insightful. I have so many thoughts, but maybe we uh, deep dive into the enterprise side a little bit. As Sarah, you pointed out in your report, wondering if you can share a little bit about the cake analogy and also, if you are a startup trying to build an intersection of Gen AI and financial services, what would be your advice? Yeah, great question. So the cake analogy, I think, brings up one component of the answer, which is that startups can be enablers for incumbents. And so it is not the case that even if an incumbent has a ton of data, that the data is available in a way that can make it useful to actually trade models. And so actually one of our portfolio companies specifically does this is like think about how to clean the data and make it enterprise ready um, for the models. And so um, that's just one example of many where enterprises are going to run into stumbling blocks. And so you need enabling developer tool companies to actually help them along the path of integrating generative AI. Um, furthermore, it could be that it uh, an, an enterprise decides that they're not going to build it internally, but instead they're just going to adopt an off-the-shelf solution as well. And I think the reason driving those decisions are really around how critical is a particular use case for the strategic purpose of a company. I, I'll give you a specific example. So in the case of Chime, their core reason to be is that they have a better product that responds to customers, like a better banking product, than do the existing traditional financial service banks. And so new product development and specialization and customization is critical to why they're so successful as a neobank. And so the way that they actually chose to adopt generative AI was creating a custom developed code base and so it's a it's a it's a co-pilot that's used with their engineers to actually to, to develop new products. But instead of just using the off-the-shelf co-pilot, they're using the one that's from their code base because they believe that they want to augment further this already competitive advantage that they have. Because if they can get this right, this is the special sauce that will enable them to always stay one step ahead, the incumbent financial institutions when it comes to new product development. So that's just one example of many. Um, but the other part of your question I think is really interesting is, so what, where does that leave startups? So let's say I don't want to just enable or I don't want to have one element that some financial services companies will purchase and not others. One way to think about this is actually going back to EvenUp. And so one of the elements that was so critical for us that we saw was that there were no incumbents in the space of what they were doing, because in order to do it well, there's this very tightly choreographed dance between process and product. And so the way that generative AI is adopted is not just as one API call from an open AI model, but instead you have a multi-stage process that is incredibly dense where you need the right model called at the right time as a combination of generative AI and traditional AI, and then also 
the the human in the loop component and all these different teams and a huge product wraparound as well. So there's a lot of tech development that's not just the AI itself. And so that heavily choreographed dance and the density of that problem with that complexity is the reason why no incumbent had existed and also the space for a startup or a disruptor to take over and fulfill that vacuum. And so there are many examples of that within financial services as well. That's super helpful and insightful advice. And Sonia, I think another aspect that the startups are very concerned about is this technology is so new that it's almost changing on a daily basis. Building in the space means you have to cope with constant changes and you are more focused on the infrastructure aspect. So I was wondering if you have any advice for startups to cope in this ongoing changing infrastructure. Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, it's a very, it's like building on quicksand right now. Um, things are changing so fast and the incumbents in the space, like when you think about, you know, generative AI in general and companies that have now become synonymous with the space, you think about the uh, foundational LM companies, uh, their competitive strategies are also evolving. Like you don't know what part of the stack they want to own, how far up vertically they're going to integrate when it comes to offering the infrastructure to actually use their own, you know, backend models. Are they going to build observability themselves? Are they going to have a library of fine-tuned models that live within the ecosystem that companies in different verticals can sort of use? Um, there are a lot of open questions. And I think what's interesting is obviously like the competitive strategy and product strategy of these companies is in flux, but equally the competitive strategy when it comes to generative AI is in flux at all of the big tech companies that are figuring out where they need to play. Um, if you look at the largest skirmishes that are going on um, today, it's between NVIDIA and then the hyperscalers. Like there, the big question is who's going to own the customer relationship? Is NVIDIA's hardware advantage enough for them to muscle into the cloud market? Um, so I this, I agree with you. I think there's so many moving pieces that the core competence that a company needs to have that is starting to build in this space today is infinite adaptability. But I think the reason we continue to be excited about this space is just because, um, one, the tenacity of the founder has always mattered and their ability to respond to changes has always mattered. This just like really... Um, elevates the need for something like that. And it's something we'll always look for and we'll continue to look for. But it's you have to get on the dance floor and start dancing, right? Like that's what that's how you're going to be in the right place at the right time and be in a position to catch lightning in a bottle. Um, a lot of entrepreneurship is uh, really hard work. It's really tough, but there's always an element of luck. And you have to place yourself uh, in a position that enables you to be lucky. Um, so it is unfortunate. Everything's in flux. My only advice is like, you know, infinite adaptability and start dancing. And, and maybe just to contrast quickly. So from the from the developer infrastructure side, as Sonia is saying, it's infinite adaptability. But from the application layer side, where another part of our team has spent a lot of time and like whether it's applied to financial services or commerce, we're really seeing that it's critical to find your niche, right? So to figure out what you're doing, like what is that highly complex process? Who is that user? What is that narrow space that you can start and dominate and then go from there? 
And so ironically, if you try to be everything to everyone, you're just going to do something that the incumbent is bound to be able to do better. Um, and so it's really finding the right approach and the right entrepreneur for both of those types of opportunities across the broader Gen AI landscape. Totally piggybacking off what Sarah said. I think that there's some art in finding something that's a large enough TAM, but not so large that the incumbent will want to do it themselves. Is there something that necessitates workflows that are so specific to this particular vertical that you're going to be meeting a need and you're kind of sheltered by from competition from the incumbents, but a niche that's also large enough that you can build a big business. Um, it's very interesting times right now. Awesome. I can sit here all day talking to you both about generative AI and the impact on financial services. It's just fascinating. Maybe just to wrap up the conversation, we talked a lot already about how Bank Capital Ventures has been working with founders and it reminds me of a recent tweet from Kevin that you guys hosted a dinner at Fogo de Chao for Founders by popular demand. So I wanted to end the conversation on a more fun note, wondering if you can give us a bit of sneak peek on how the event turned out. It was wildly popular. People loved it. And one aim with the event was to just have people in our community come together and have a good time. Um, because we were getting a lot of tongue-in-cheek messages about like, oh, it looks like, you know, you guys bought um, this place and we should go and like eat. And we were like, sure, why not do that? But also like, I think one of the things at the back of our mind was we shouldn't wait till the fundraising process to kind of help draw the link across the community between Bain Capital and Bain Capital Ventures. It is a very close relationship and it was sort of, uh, a fun way to underline how closely the two organizations are linked together and how we do rely on each other um, for our networks and are able to uh, leverage one and the others. I saw the rave on Twitter, so I'm sure it was a great success. And thanks for Sonia to share kind of a sneak peek with us. And uh, the other aspect I want to ask Sarah, that you mentioned that you like to build relationship with founders early on. You met even up um, founder at a coffee shop, which I really need, wanted to know like where these coffee shops are in SF. So can you share an example of how you were able to do something fun or like build personal relationships with founders that you work with? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe just driving this into how we can authentically show up as investors as well, because I think... Um, and you talked about this, it's really competitive, right? So for the best founders and the best companies are going to always have a ton of options. And so one way that I think about it is how do I show up as my full self and share that with people to attract them as well, to be vulnerable and open with themselves, because that's really the basis on which trust is built. And that's how a great relationship is formed. And that's true. In any, in any setting, and I think especially in this really competitive cutthroat world that is venture and startups. Um, and so something that I love is sailing. My family, we co-own a sailboat on San Francisco Bay. I grew up sailing in Wisconsin on Lake Michigan. I have always been an avid sailor. I took my first steps on a sailboat, actually. Um, I have two kids. Actually, the youngest is eight weeks, which is why I was not at the Fogo de Chao event because I'm on maternity leave. Um, but I always love finding opportunities to take people sailing. And it's a great way to see the city. It's literally the best way to see San Francisco. And it's just gorgeous out there. And there's um, what I love about it is you 
it, it's so, so contrived, but you can't control the wind, but you can control the sails. And so there's something just perfectly poetic around sailing and how that ad- applies to life and applies to startups in your market and com- competition as well. And so I've had the opportunity to take a number of founders out um, by themselves or with their teams as part of the process of getting to know them and as part of a sell, sell process um, and as part of a, a pre-board process. And so those have been really special times for me. Um, and then m- maybe just like one example is I uh, have hosted a number of fintech female founder sales. And so that's been a great community to help to facilitate connections across. Um, and, and again, it's just a really special way to get people out of what they're normally doing and um, make them feel more comfortable and create an experience that's so special uh, to really build those connections so that they can call on them when different things are happening in their company over time. Love it. I've started selling this summer as well and definitely enjoy the feeling a lot. Thank you so much again, Sarah and Sonia. It's been such a pleasure sitting down with you guys. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where we'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria. And until next time, this is your host, Zoe.